Um, I guess I want to start by um, saying that there is no better place to be on a Sunday than right here with you guys. There is something precious and something special when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, my, my biggest concern about the sermon today is that I'm going to try something a little bit different and use an iPod out here, which is my son's iPod, which I barely know how to use. And I'm going to attempt to speak and move these little slides up here on my own rather than having James up the back doing it all for me. So I thought that was going to be my biggest challenge this morning, coordinating talking and the slides. But you know, as I'm sitting here this morning and I'm listening to people sharing, and I'm listening to people praying. And Jade, oh, the tears that well up in my eyes when I listen to your um, little summary of the discussion you had last night at the family dinner table confirms to me that Jesus is so alive in our hearts. He is so wanting to give us a message today. There is no way that we cannot believe that Jesus resides in each and every one that's sitting here today. Do not believe the lie that he's not speaking to you. Do not believe the lie that he is somewhere far away. Because... Jade's little discussion about a discussion that seemed to be a random discussion that she had last night at the dinner table is indeed a complete summary of my sermon today. I'm sitting there, the tears are welling up in my eyes. Could it be, Lord, that she's going to start talking about... mm -hmm. Could it be when she keeps talking... It's like, how can he be so precise in giving her this message You stole my thunder, girl. No, there's no thunder. He's the thunder. But it's so beautiful to be reminded that when something like that happens, it reminds us that when he speaks that little thought into your mind, he's speaking to you. He's alive. He's not distant. He's right here. And he is really keen for us to get a message today. And the key message today he wants you to know is that he is so wanting you to know him. Because the more you can know him, the more you can live a victorious life. Ask him. The prayers are ask him and I'll show you great and wonderful things. Today's sermon is all about asking him. And I'm a little bit overwhelmed with this emotion inside which says, See, Liz, I've got it all sorted. You wanted to tell them that I've got it all sorted, but I needed to show you during this service today that this sermon is all sorted before you even speak the first word. He's prepared your hearts. He's prepared your minds. We are here because he wants us to be here. Don't discount what we see by sight. We see a building with some blue walls. But Jesus is alive here with a great message. Don't miss it today. He wants you to get this message today. He really does. So what have we been doing so far this year? We've been looking at this topic of rebuilding the ruins. What's been ruined? The thing that's being ruined in our lives is the Christian worldview. 
There are so many competing ideas for what we're thinking, what we believe, and that's what this year is about. It's rebuilding the Christian worldview, not the worldview according to traditions, according to worldly principles, but according to the only 100% source of truth, and that's God's word. So that's what we're doing this year. We're rebuilding the truth, which is being corroded in a messy world that doesn't want you to have the truth. Because we can overcome when we've got the truth, when we've got him. So we've got to know what are the truths and what are the lies. And this year is rebuilding those truths. So the first series that we did this year was looking at the boundary stone in terms of theology. And theology is basically who is God and does he exist? And we looked at general revelation. What does general revelation tell us from nature about God? And we looked at specific revelation. What does his word tell us about him? And now we've moved on to a second series of sermons. We're building a new ruin. And this one is all around the topic of philosophy. What's philosophy? Well, philosophy is... What do we really believe about those big questions in life? What are we doing here? Where did we come from? What is life all about? Is it just a meaningless, ridiculous time of suffering? Is it all about getting the most money we can so we can be most comfortable we can? The Christian worldview has an answer to these big questions. God has all these answers and he's revealing them to us in his timing and his way. So we've got to go back and rebuild these ruins, these ruins that actually are telling us the answers to these big questions. So the second boundary stone is the boundary stone about the meaning of our life. Okay, here we go. It's happening. So it's all about Christian philosophy. It's all about the big picture. It's all about answering some of those big questions in life. So last week, you'll remember that we handed out the little slips and we got about 34 different big questions, questions that have been burning in your mind, questions that you're looking for answers. And you know, these questions... God has all the answers to these questions. And in his wisdom and in his love, he wants to reveal them to us in his timing and his way. And the amazing thing was that when we looked at these questions, there was an an underlining theme to about 75% of your questions. So even though none of you discussed them, there was this common theme to these questions. And the common theme to these questions is going to be revealed at a workshop. The workshop is called His Big Picture. And this workshop is going to be at the same place as we had the last workshop, but note that it's on a Monday night, not a Tuesday night this time. So it's going to be tomorrow week, Monday the 27th of February. The picture you see up there is on our website. So if you want to come along to the workshop then all you need to do is log on to the website. You just click on to the, there where it says register now. Pop in your email address. You're done. You're on the list. That's all it requires. If you have friends that would like to come along, if you've got friends that go to other churches, they are so welcome to come along to the workshop. So they can either log on to the website and put their email address in 
or you can log in and you can actually add your friends' email addresses. So either way, either you can log them in or they can log in and register. That's all, the ha all that needs to be done to come along. So that's Monday the 27th of February from 7 till 9 o'clock and it's at Fitzy's, which is just across from the Hyperdome. All you need to do is register. Are there any questions about that workshop? No? Okay. So let's get on with today's sermon. The bottom line, I want to give you the bottom line of this sermon right up front so you don't miss it. The bottom line is this. I think we get the top line. I think we get if there's no Jesus in our life, there's no eternal life. We can't have eternal life without Jesus. So no Jesus, there's no eternal life. There's no life now, there's no life after we die, there's no life. But do we get the bottom line here? Do we understand that in the positive, if we can really know Jesus, we can know about life. We can know more about the life he created us for. He can know more about the plan he has for each one of us. But to know the answers to these questions, we've got to know him. We've got to know someone, not something, not a list of facts, not a list of answers. We've got to know him. We've got to call out to him for the answers. He says, seek me, seek me. He wants to tell us. So the bottom line today is, if we want to know about life, we've got to know someone. We've got to know Jesus. And here's today's key scripture that goes with the key message from Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. We read, those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And it's about taking this beautiful truth and going over and over it again today, looking at it differently, saying, Lord, let this not just be information from your word. Let this be transformation. Let this transform my mind. Let this transform me to be more like you because that's what his word is there for. It's not just information. This is transformation he's looking for. Now, in order to repeat this message, in order to maybe help us get this message, could I get the whole back row, starting with Nathan and ending with Margaret, to stand up? That's you, Nathan, and that's you, Margaret. Can everyone stand up on that row? All I want you to do, it's really simple. You've got to stand too, Ruth. All I want you to do is read this scripture with me. Now, this scripture is going to come up from time to time today. So as soon as you see this scripture come up on the screen, you've got to stand up and we've got to repeat this scripture. Because this scripture is meant to be embedded in our heart, not just head knowledge. And repeating it, looking at it differently, asking God to show us more of him as we look at his word makes a difference because this transforms us. So let's read it together back row. You ready? Psalm 9 verse 10. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Thank you. You can sit down. But you've got a job ahead of you. Look out for this when it comes up on the screen. So what we notice here is this beautiful promise. And the reason I've 
underline never forsaken is so that we get this promise. We get this idea that there's a promise associated with seeking God. He wants us to know him. And he says, there's a promise here for you. I'm not going to let you down. I'm never going to forsake you. What does that actually mean? The Greek word forsaken means he is never going to leave you. He is never going to depart from you. He is never going to leave you behind. He is never going to let you alone. He is never going to abandon you. He is never going to neglect you. He is never going to let you loose. He'll never set you free. He'll never let you go. You will never be deserted by God if you seek him. We've got to hold on to that promise. Seeking him comes with a promise. You will not be deserted if you keep seeking for God. He will not disappear. He won't leave you. He'll be right there with you. We've got to hold on to that promise because the world says, he's not really there. He's not talking to you. He doesn't actually really exist. He's actually gone somewhere else. We've got to hold the promise. Psalm 14.2, we looked at this last week, says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. He's looking for people to seek him. He wants you to seek him. He's watching. His eye runs over the earth looking for people to seek him. I want you to seek me. I want you to know me. But you know, not everybody seeks God because we have a choice. We don't have to seek God. He gives us a choice. Psalm 10.4 says the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. You see, we don't have to go to God for the answers. We don't have to seek him. We can go to human traditions. We can go to basic principles of this world. We can go to the world for answers to our questions. But we've got to be careful here. Paul warns us about if we're not going to seek God, if we're looking for answers from the world, he says, be careful. They'll take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. You see, it's hollow and deceptive answers to your big questions. It's hollow, it's hollow, it's empty, and it's deceptive. It's not the truth. So we've got to be careful where we go when we're looking for answers to our questions. So not only is it important to think about where we're going or more importantly who we're going to for answers to our questions, we've got to think about how we're actually approaching God. It makes a difference. He's looking for our motive. He's looking for the heart that's seeking him. He wants to know how are you approaching me? What's your attitude towards me when you're seeking me for answers? It makes a difference what our motive is. What assumptions are in our mind? What we're thinking when we go to God? So I want to show you a couple of choices or a number of choices you can make when you come to God. The first choice is going to be in black writing. As you see the first choice in black writing, ask yourself, am I coming to God in the black writing or am I coming to God in the red writing? Let's look at the first choice. Are you coming to God seeking him or are you coming to God demanding an answer from him are we seeking him with all our heart seeking him and trusting him 
Or are we stamping our foot and saying, I need to know now, God, you need to speak to me now and you've actually been a bit slow. I demand that you tell me now because I need to know now. And what sort of God are you if you don't let me know now? Are we demanding or are we seeking him, trusting that he'll give us the answer in his timing and in his way? His word says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He says, ask, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. The door will be opened to you. But what happens if you are asking and you are seeking and you are knocking and you feel like you're not getting any answers? What conclusion do you come to? Do you think, he's not listening to me, I have to yell the question at him, I need to repeat the question to him, didn't he get it, doesn't he know how important it is that I get the answer to this question, doesn't he know I need this answer now? You can so easily turn from seeking and asking into demanding. But you see, sometimes God doesn't give us the answer at all while we're on this earth. Sometimes he gives part of the answer, sometimes he reveals all of the answer. But how do we respond to that? How do we understand that? What's going on? Is he fickle? I want to give you an example of the relationship between a two-year-old and a father on earth because I think that gives us some insight into this beautiful relationship that we have with our father in heaven. So a little boy, he's two, and his dad decide that they're going to take a train ride. So they go to the station and they're waiting on the platform. And you know how on the platform when you're waiting for a train you have to stand behind the yellow line and it's normally those little bumps along there so you feel it. So you don't go over the yellow line because if you go over the yellow line you're going to fall into the train track and you don't want to be falling into the train track because the train will come. As an adult, we know that. We have that understanding and we have that knowledge and we know it's safe for us to stay behind the yellow line and off the tracks. Now, a two-year-old thinks a little bit differently to perhaps what you and I think about the yellow line and the tracks. The two-year-old might come up to the yellow line, peer over down onto the tracks and go, you know what, that gravel, you know how they normally have gravel between the tracks? Those little rocks down there, I reckon I could collect a few of them and pelt them at a few birds. That would be fun. So he goes towards the tracks to pick up some of those rocks. And and he's keen to get those rocks. He's got an idea in his head. He wants those rocks. Now, if the father is a loving father, he won't let the two-year-old onto the tracks because he knows it's not safe. So the father might say to the two-year-old, Son, don't, don't go over the yellow line, it's not safe, and pulls him back. But the two-year-old thinks, I, I really want those rocks on that track. I need those rocks because it would be fun. And he's imagining hitting the birds with the rocks. He goes forward again. The father is probably not going to stop, kneel next to this two-year-old and say, Let me tell you about the mechanics of time and space and speed of trains and what happens when trains hit little children. I just need to explain the full answer for you so that you understand why the answer is no. No loving father would do that. This poor two-year-old will be hit by a train by the time he gets through to that two-year-old. In fact, he'll probably never get through to that two-year-old while the two-year-old remains two. So he may hit the child on the bottom, he may grab the child, he may restrain the child, he may put the child back in the pram, 
But his motive is he loves this little one. He wants to keep him safe. So the two-year-old might start demanding and screaming and tantruming because he wants those rocks. But you see, that loving father knows best. The loving father may not be giving the two-year-old all the answers because the two-year-old is not able to comprehend all the answers yet. You see the analogy. Our loving God has love as his motive. He is love. So we've got to understand when we're coming to him with our questions, we can seek him and he will give us the answers we're capable of understanding. Whether we're 2 or 16 or 62, he has a, the right answer at the right time for each one of us. So if we're not getting the full answer to the question... That doesn't mean that God's ignoring us. It doesn't mean he's left us because remember, he never forsakes us. He's right there standing next to us, making sure that we don't get hit by the train that's going to take us out. So seeking him makes sense when we understand that his motive is love, nothing else but love. But sometimes it's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to have those answers and maybe we don't really want to grow up. Maybe we just want to be the two-year-old because life is all about having fun. And I just want some rocks to hit some birds because I think that would be fun. You know, life's just all too hard. You know, the whole idea of being a baby where someone else runs after you the whole time, maybe that's all very tempting, like this little chap. You see, we feel like this sometimes. You know, we might look like adults physically on the outside, but you know, spiritually on the inside, is that really how we're connecting with God? And I like growing up. I don't like this. I don't like the answers. In fact, just, I just want to be a baby. I just want to have fun. Isn't that what life's all about? You see, we have to understand that there's a growing that God wants us to do. He wants us to mature. He wants us to be more like him. But we've got to understand that we have to hand over to him and understand your motive is love. So the answer you give me is motivated by love. The timing of the answer and the content of the answer we sometimes don't like if we're to mature in him. Otherwise, we stay as a baby spiritually. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, just like the father at the train station, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's just waiting for us to ask. He wants to give us good gifts. His motive is good, not evil. God has already given us so many good gifts. Consider the beautiful gift he gave us in his son. If we're wondering whether he really is loving us, whether his motive really is best for us, consider his son. Go back to the cross and be reminded of how much this mighty God loves you. His motive is love and always is love and always will be love because he is love. So if he gives you the answer, it's loving. If he doesn't give you the answer, it's loving. If he gives you part of an answer, it's loving. It's always loving. 
He chooses because he knows more than us. He loves us better than we could ever know. It's remembering that he loves us so much and the answers are always given in love. There's the key scripture. Hi, back row. Bit slow. (laughs) They want it snappier next time, guys. Let's go. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Thank you, back row. So seek. Let's have a good look at seeking. What does God actually want us to do? What does this word mean? Are we doing this? I'll, I'll explain seeking. Let me run it off. Seeking is to resort to, to seek with care, to inquire, to consult, to seek deity in prayer and worship. Are we seeking him in our prayer and worship? Or are we just rattling off something that we hope thinks we think might be nice for him to hear? Are we seeking him in our prayers? Are we investigating? Are we asking for? Are we requiring? Are we practicing, studying, following, seeking with application? Are we seeking just for knowledge or are we seeking to apply this in our lives? And seeking means care for too. Are we caring for God when we seek for him? You see, we don't need to demand and stamp our foot and get upset and have a tantrum to get God's attention. We simply need to seek him. His response will always be loving. We don't need to twist his arm. So the next choice that we have when we come to God, are you trusting Are you trusting him in all things when you come to him? Are you trusting that he'll give you the answer that you need? Or are you coming to him with a question? Are you coming to him because you want to control your own life? You don't want to trust him with your life. You want that answer so you can be in control. You see, if you have all that information, if you have all the answers, man, you've got to trust no one but yourself. What's your motive when you come to God with your question? Are you trusting him for the answer or are you looking for that information to get that control so you don't have to trust a God that's not talking to you perhaps? You see, we don't have to strive to be in control. We can trust him because God is in fact in control. We have to repeat this. We have to go back to this because the world says, look at what you can see. Isn't it out of control? Obviously, God is out of control. He doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, really? No, the reality, the truth is God is in control. He always has been in control and he always will be in control. So let's turn to our Bibles. I think it's a good thing to bring our Bibles on Sunday. I think it's a good thing to go directly to your own Bible so that he can speak to you through his words. So let's open our Bible at Isaiah chapter 40. I'm just going to grab my glasses. So we're going to Isaiah chapter 40 and we're going to verse 21. Before we even read this though, I think it's important that we understand and we acknowledge we're not coming to a book. 
We're not coming to a book with some ink on a white page. We're not coming to a, a textbook that gives us information. When we open the pages of this supernatural book, we're coming to a supernatural God. We need to acknowledge that. We need to understand that this book is like no other book because we're coming to the Word. We're coming to His Word and we're coming to Him. So let's ask Him to interact with us. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, remind us that you are the word, that we're not coming to words on a page, we're not coming to information, but we're coming to you. Lord, help us to hear you. Help us to understand your truth, Lord Jesus. Open the eyes in our heart so that we receive your truth and your word. Let us not come for knowledge or information, Lord, but let us come seeking transformation in our life so that we can see you, so that we can know you, so we can become more like you, Lord. Lord, let us remember that we're talking to you when we come to your word and more importantly, help us to listen to you when we come to your word. In your mighty name, Jesus, amen. Let's read. From verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? So just notice that he's starting with, you've got to go back to the beginning if you want to have any understanding. This is the bit that got me a bit teary, Jade. Jade's looking at the end time. She's looking at Revelation and God's saying, you've got to go back to Adam. You've got to go back to the beginning if you want to know the ending. Because he doesn't give us a clear ending. We have some clear information about the beginning. That's showing us he's in control. He's in control of the beginning, he's in control of the now, and he's in control of the ending. We've got to remember the beginning shows us that he's in control. He tells us lots about the beginning. He tells us lots about where we came from. Let's keep going. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. He can give and he can take away. He is in control. He has the power to create. He has the power to uncreate. He's a powerful God here who's in control. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. As quick as that, as easy as that in a whirlwind. He's in the whirlwind. He spoke to Job in a whirlwind. He can create a whirlwind. He can direct a whirlwind. He's in control. And the very last verse I want to, to end on here. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Who is my equal? There is no one like God. There's no one as powerful as God. There's no one that has all the answers. There's no one else that's in control. So when we're looking for answers, why do we go elsewhere? There is no one that is equal to God. There is no one who's going to give you the whole truth. There is nowhere you can go to find an equal to our God because only God is in control. 
Let's consider Job for a moment. Because while we have questions, Job had 38 chapters of questions. The book of Job is full of his questions. He's aching for answers to questions. Now, why did this man have so many questions? It seems that when things don't go so well in our lives, that's when a question is raised in our mind. Often, why God? Or what's going on, God? When things are going smoothly for us, we don't feel that need to question so much. And Job, man, he had it all. You know, when you read Job, I feel like it's almost like you're entering into one of those dramas you know, that you see on TV or you hear about at least on TV where all these things happen and that was all in a week. And it wouldn't happen in anyone else's lifetime or 20 other people's lifetime, but in these dramas, it all happens in a week. You know, when you read Job, that's what it reminds me of. It's like, oh, you can't be for real. Not, oh, no, not something else. Listen to the list of issues he had to deal with in life. First of all, his oxen are taken by enemy raids. That's not good. But then all his sheep are killed by this terrible electric storm. And if that wasn't enough, his herd of camels are wiped out in a natural catastrophe. But then his seven sons and his three daughters, who were all in the same house, I think it was to celebrate a birthday, were hit by a tornado and all killed. All seven sons and all three daughters. So he's lost all his livestock, he's lost all his family. And then God decides to cover this poor man in boils. If it wasn't enough to lose everything, he's now gained a disease. So this poor man has lost everything. Now he's physically inflicted. Do you think it could get any worse? Is there another problem that Job could contend with? Well, three so-called friends made life pretty hard for Job. See, these friends came along and just when you're trying to deal with what's on your plate, your so-called friends with their smug little looks on their faces, decide to tell Job they know why all this stuff is happening to him. They tell him they've got the answers. They know why. They've got some answers to these big questions. Why is this happening to me? The problem is they didn't have the truth, though. So he's got more questions. Now, God, you've got these people telling me this. This is just raising more questions, not providing more answers. And if that wasn't enough, if it wasn't friends betraying him and trying to tell him that it was his sin that was the reason for these terrible things going on, his own wife, the one he's closest to, says, I'll just curse God and die. This man has a lot of problems and a lot of questions. Chapter after chapter, you read Job calling out, aching, God, help me, answer me, where are you? And what's amazing is that when God comes and speaks to Job, which in itself is amazing, which in itself shows us he never forsakes us, he never leaves us. Job's seeking, God is there, he hasn't forsaken Job. He knows more of what's going on in the background than what Job does. But he hasn't left Job. He promised us never to leave us. And what he does 
is he doesn't give the answers we're expecting. In fact, he actually asks Job more questions. But the questions he asks are about nature. The questions he asks are things like, so you've got some ideas about how you might keep the earth spinning or how the seas work or how you make the sun rise with a beautiful dawn or the stars in the sky? Do you know how to answer these questions, Job? He's trying to show Job something. He's trying to contrast the fact that God has great power. He has great wisdom and he has great control over all things compared to the limited understanding and ability of Job's mind to understand the answers to big questions. He says, I am in control, Job. I am here speaking with you. I am showing you I haven't left you because I'm talking to you. And I'm explaining to you that I am in control. I'm showing you these simple things in nature to show you, you can't do that. You can't control those things in nature. I can. You need to settle, pedal. You see, in essence, this is what God was saying to Job. He was saying, if you just have a look at all the problems that I'm solving, I'm solving the problem of that star not falling out of the sky and hitting you. For example, if you look at all the problems I'm solving from this very simple, simple analysis of life in terms of what you can see outside your window, even they are far beyond your ability to understand and cope with. So can't you trust me to work out all those little problems that you're having? Can't you trust me if I can control these big things? Don't you think I can control the small things in your life? It's an issue of control. He's trying to teach Job, you need to trust me because I am in control. I am showing you through simple examples of nature. I'm in control. I'm in control. Back row, it's your gig. Psalm chapter 9. Verse 10, those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So what is it to trust God? It's to have confidence in him. It's to be confident that he's in control. It's to be bold so, because he is in control. It's to be secure. It's to be safe because he's in control. We don't have to take control with the answers because he is in control with the answers. And he's motivated by love to give us the answers in a way that we can understand and in a timing that is perfect. We don't need to be in control. We don't even need to try and be in control. Instead, we need to trust that he is in control. Next question. Do we come to God in faith? believing that we can understand life and live life in faith? Or are we coming to God thinking that we can only answer things by things we see? We need a proof. I need to see it, God, for it to be real. You see, we live by faith, not by sight. His word tells us that. But are we coming to him believing that the answers are by faith, not by sight? Do we need scientific proof and evidence? Christian faith lies beyond proof. Christian faith lies beyond what we can see. 
because greater is the unseen than the seen. The great answers are unseen. The things we can see are so small. The things that we can't see are enormous. Job did not know about the wager between God and and Satan. He said, did you consider my servant Job? There was a reason behind the suffering Job went through. But he couldn't see that. Job couldn't see what was going on in the powers and principalities. By faith we live. By faith we're looking for answers. You see, life is beyond matter. Matter is real, but the big realities of life are eternal and are unseen. So our answers can only be partly answered if we're just looking for the seen. The truth extends into the unseen. Okay, let me do a very simple, simple test, a simple demonstration between material matter, the seen and the unseen. You ready for it? What I want you to do is close your eyes. Now what I want you to do is make sure that you don't think about a pink elephant. Whatever you do, don't. Make sure a big, bright, pink, enormous elephant is not in your thoughts. You can think about anything else but a pink elephant. Okay, you can open your eyes. I am fairly certain that there was a picture or at least a thought of a pink elephant. That's not rocket science, Liz. We kind of got that. But you know that thought, how do I know that? I can't see your thinking because your thought is supernatural. Your brain, which does the thinking, it's material. I can... We can see a brain, but we can't see a thought. But the thoughts are real. You know the thought is real because you had the thought of a pink elephant. You see, the supernatural is happening every time we have a thought. I can say the words pink elephant, we create a thought. It helps us understand that if we can just say a word to create a thought how God can just say a word and create the universe. The supernatural is happening every time you have a thought. The supernatural is not weird and wacky. Sometimes it is. But it's as simple as having a thought. We're entering into the supernatural every time we think something. Every time a thought comes into our head. You see, I didn't have to give you something that you could see to create that thought. All I had to do was say the words. The supernatural exists. And unless we understand the supernatural is real, we will view life based on what we can see, touch and feel. And we will never have the answers to our big questions. Because the answers to our big questions come from the supernatural. Because God lives as a being, as a supernatural. So we've got to understand if people are coming to us asking us questions, big questions of life, philosophical questions about the meaning of life, they're not going to get the answer without God and the supernatural. 
It's like Jade was saying in her little story, it's like the here and now, outwardly, we're wasting away. And you know, the here is a dot. That's it. In the whole scheme of things, our little life is that little dot. And you know, eternity is the arrow. But we're not living for the dot. We're not focusing on the here and now to answer our questions as if eternity doesn't exist because the only thing that's happening in the here and now is we're just getting older. The outward is wasting away. But you know the inward is the thing that he wants to transform and grow because it's the inward that lasts for eternity. We might be living in the here and now, but we're living for eternity. Every choice we make, every decision we make is for the eternity. Unless you're limiting your life to the here and now. And you don't think eternity exists because that's supernatural. But the big questions can only be answered in the eternity. We have to embrace the eternal perspective. We have to remember the answers are in eternity. We're not going to see them necessarily in the here and now unless we lock ourselves into the here and now. So today's key scripture, there it is again. Come on, Ruth. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He's saying, trust in me. But we can't trust in him unless we trust in the supernatural, in the eternal perspective of God. Trusting that greater is the unseen than the seen. We'll never get all the answers from the seen. Next choice. When we come to him, are we more interested in answering who? Or are we actually seeking an answer to what? You see, there's a big difference coming to God with a what question. Tell me what. Give me information. Give me knowledge. You see, knowledge only puffs up, but love edifies. But love is about a person. So when we're coming to God, really the question we're looking to answer is a who question. Who are you, God? Because if I can know more about you, I can know more about the answer to this big question that I've got. Because God is all about relating to us. He's all about love. He's all about saying the big questions revolve around knowing me and I'm about love. So we need to learn about love. If we don't learn about love and him, we're just gathering information to puff ourselves up perhaps so that we sound like we've got all the answers. But that's not going to come outside this relational thing that happens between him and us. You see, we were made to know God. He made us in his image. In fact, the word says, let us make man in our image, in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the more we can know him, the more we can know us. We can answer questions about knowing ourselves if we know more about him. We're made in his image. It makes sense to know more about him. Knowing him means knowing us. And what's more, we are made to be in relationship with him. 
It's not knowing him as if he's over there or up there in heaven somewhere. He's saying, I want you to know me in relationship to me. Come and walk with me. Pray, sing, read, listen. It's through this relationship with him that we learn more about him. Let me, let me demonstrate what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make. There's a big difference between knowing lots of information about God and knowing God. Knowing all these facts about God, the what, is not what he's seeking us to know. He's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to come and know about me, who I am. See, we can go to the Bible and we can say, okay, so we need to know about Jesus. Right, let's have a look at those four Gospels. I know that the Gospels talk about Jesus. Let's see. Right, Matthew, the book of Matthew. That shows Jesus came from Abraham through David okay, and demonstrates he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Right, I've got to remember that Matthew's about the promised Messiah. Next one, Mark, the book of Mark. That shows Jesus came from Nazareth, demonstrating Jesus as a servant. Okay, got that. So the first point is he was, uh, what was that again? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, promised in the Old Testament. That's right, the second book. Oh, right. The next piece of information, he was a servant. Got that. Next one, Luke. Luke shows Jesus came from Adam, demonstrating that Jesus is a perfect man. Right, so the third point is he's perfect. Got it. And the next book, John, that shows Jesus came from heaven, demonstrating he's, Jesus is the son of God. Okay, I've got those four points. Let's move on. That's not what this is about. This is not about collecting information and lists of characteristics of Jesus. He says, come to me and I'll, I'll show you more of myself. He says, yes, in the book of Matthew, you learn that I'm the promised Messiah. You're learning something about me. I keep my promises. God makes a promise in his word and Je- Jesus shows us. He keeps his promises. I'm learning something. I'm, I think I can trust someone that keeps his promises. That's changing what I know about God. He's a trustworthy God. I can believe what he says. It's not just a piece of information. I can come to Mark and say, I've come to be your servant. I can say, wow, he's come to serve me. The great, amazing God has come to serve me, a servant. And I'm made in his image. Maybe there's something here for me to do in my life where I need to be looking at serving. Wow, that's going to change the way I think about what I'm doing. That might even change the choices I make about how I interact with people. Wow, that's amazing. And he's come to serve. Wow, he's come to serve me. Man, he must love me. He's this enormous, mighty God. He could be whoever he wants to be and he's choosing to be my servant. Wow, he must really love me. I'm starting to get a, a little understanding of this mighty, mighty God. Luke says he's the perfect man. The perfect man. Jesus is the perfect man. That's amazing that someone could be perfect and he's become a man to interact with me on this earth. Would have been so much nicer, I reckon, in heaven. But no, he's come to this dirty place of earth to be the perfect man. He needed to be perfect. Why would he need to be? Oh, to save me. We need perfection because God is so holy. Oh, he's holy. I'm starting to know that God is so holy. I need someone perfect to help me. I'm not perfect, but that's okay. Jesus has come. I can believe in him. Do you see it's not just a fact anymore? And John says Jesus is God. So if we can know Jesus, if we can read about Jesus, if we can interact with Jesus, if we can understand Jesus, if we can love Jesus, if we can open our hearts to Jesus, we can know God. He's not this unknowable, distant, grumpy God. We can know God because Jesus is God. 
And how do we know? How do we know if we know God? Well, he tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So it's not about can you pass a test of how much information you know. It's about a relational thing called loving. And the great commandment says, love God and love one another. He says, if you know me, you'll be loving me. You'll be loving one another. That's how you'll know if you love me. That's how you'll know if you know me. But I want to make a point here because I think it's really important. God is not saying you'll know me based on how others are loving you. See, that's outside our control. He's not saying if lots of people love you, lots of people think highly of you, if you're really popular and you're feeling really warm and everyone's being nice to you, oh, you must know God. He's not saying that. He's saying everyone that loves. He's saying if we're loving the unlovable, if we're loving people who are really being very nasty to us, he says, then you know me. He said it's how you love. It's how you're loving me and it's how you're loving others. Ah, now you're starting to know me. And the better you love me and the better you love each other, the better you're getting to know the real me. It's not how others are loving you, it's how you're loving others. Today's key scripture, there it is again. Come on, Bev, you can do it. Oh, <laughs> I think you can be let off. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So focusing on him and knowing him rather than all about him or information about him is how he wants us to seek him. And the final question is, when we come to God, are we seeking the beginning or are we seeking to understand the ending? Do we need to know exactly the date and the time and the place we're going to end our life on this earth? Otherwise, we just cannot be comfortable. We cannot be content. We, we cannot go on in life until we have all of that stitched up. Or are we saying, I can learn about the ending if I go back to the beginning? Because they're linked. God said to Job, where were you when I laid foundations of the earth? He says, you got problems and questions now that you can't answer? I can because I actually created everything around you and I created you too at the beginning. Consider the beginning to understand the now. Consider the beginning to understand the end. You see, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. It's the very first verse. It's the very beginning of our Bible. And he tells us all about what he created and it's fantastic. But you know, there's another place in the Bible where it says in the beginning. And there's other place in the Bible where it says in the beginning actually happened before this in the beginning. So it's like the start of the beginning. And it gets confusing because now we're talking about eternity, which doesn't have a beginning or an end. But this other place in the Bible where it says in the beginning actually talks about who was in the beginning before he created all of these wonderful things we see before us. You see, in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning was 
the word. Now, when I first read this, and I'm wondering what happened when the very first time you read this, as soon as I see the word the, I think of something, that chair, that building, that car. So I read this and I thought, the word. Oh, well, that's something. There was something, the word. And the word was with God. Oh, okay, so that's the book and it was just sort of sitting there next to God. Yep. And the word was God. Oh, that changes things because I thought the word was something. Now that's just told me the word is someone. And we know the word is someone because later on we read in John and the word became flesh. The word is Jesus. We know that now. So if we go back and re-look at it as someone, we read, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was someone. And the word was God, was with God. See that little word with? In the Greek, that little word with doesn't mean sitting beside, like a book sits beside you maybe when you're studying. That little word with in the Greek says in relationship with, in relationship to. So we've got the word Jesus and the word was with God, in relationship with God. So if we go back to the beginning, he says, was Jesus and something very special. There was this relationship between Jesus and God. And then he says, and the word was God, which means Jesus is God. The word is God. We're interacting with God in this book called the Word of God. Now, what's interesting then is if you go on to verse 2, it says, he was with God in the beginning. It's like, yeah, I got that. You already said that in verse 1. Yeah, I got that. You said it when you said, um, and the word was with God. And have you just repeated yourself there, God? Oh, he was with God in the beginning. We've got to learn. If he repeats something, you've got to stop, underline it, bowl it, put a big fluorescent pen over it. He was with God in the beginning. He's saying to us, I need to repeat this to you because it's important you understand there's a relationship going on here. It's a really important relationship that's linked to our beginning too. It's linked to their purpose and our purpose. And then he says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that's been made. That includes you and me. Which says he created us for a reason. Have you ever wondered why God called Jesus the word? It's a strange name, don't you think? I mean, Jesus has lots of names, but why would you call him the word? What's amazing is that if you look at the first time the word word was spoken or used in the Greek, it was 600 years before Jesus was even born. The meaning is the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. So here we are, we have the Son of God in the beginning. He is the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing world, uh, changing universe. So no matter how much things change, he himself is a divine reason. He himself is a plan for our lives. So the more we know him, the more we can understand the reason for our lives, the plan for our lives. Knowing Jesus is opening that lock with our life purpose. So now I, I have one question for you. We asked you for your big questions last week. There really is only one big question that I have for you. And the big question is, do you know God? I mean, really? 
Do you know God? Do you experience God? Are you seeking for God? Are you fellowshipping with God? Are you in relationship with God? Are you talking to God? Are you listening to God? Are you inquiring about God? Are you searching for God? Are you seeking God? Because without knowing God, we can't know what life is all about. We can't answer those questions. We can't have life purpose. You see, God knows you He knows each person in this room extremely well, better than probably you know yourself. God knows you. He created you, remember, with a plan and a purpose and with meaning. He's asking us to seek him. There's a purpose for our lives and we'll only find that if we know him, we got to jump from the top line to the bottom line. I think we get the top line. No Jesus, no life. But what about knowing Jesus and knowing the life that he's prepared for you, that he's created you for? The more we can know him, the more we can understand him, the more we interact with him, the more he can show us himself and the life he created you for let's pray lord jesus we come to you this morning we come to you with a heart that cries out to know you lord not stomping our feet and demanding answers as if we somehow think in our mind we know what you should tell us and we know what timing that should be in Lord, we're in awe of your majesty and your power and your wisdom and your love, Lord. We acknowledge, Lord, our limited understanding, our limited ability, our flawed thinking, Lord, our flawed lives. But, Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would help us to seek you and to continue to seek you, to persevere, Lord, in searching for you. And Lord, thank you that we can find you, that you will never abandon us, Lord. Help us remember that. Help us to know that when the temptation is to go elsewhere for answers. Lord, when the temptation is to give up on you. Lord, as we scream at you, you just keep loving us back. Lord Jesus, help us to keep seeking for you, to know you, to really know you to walk closer with you today than we did yesterday, to be so close to you that our lives are one and not just individually, Lord, but as your body, as your corporate body, as your church. Lord, help us to know you as your body and your church. We pray in your precious and very holy name, Jesus. Amen.